Welcome back. Good to see everybody here. Um, I didn't know between the debate and the, the Yankees in their playoffs, I didn't know who was going to show up, so I was tempted not to come. Um, hey, we're going to be together for the next six weeks, and then we'll take a break for Thanksgiving, I believe, and then we'll be back for four more weeks. And so that's going to kind of be the flow from here on out. And so we took the two-week break, and it was good. It was good. Hopefully you got some rest. Uh, hopefully you got a little bit of energy back and now we'll just hit it hard for six more weeks We'll take another break a little bit of break in november and then we'll come back and we'll hit it hard again uh, Up through the christmas break and maybe just maybe by december we'll be into james chapter two. So uh, if you have your bibles turn to james chapter one And uh, let me just revisit a couple of things that we had been talking about we're going to start down this path and We're going to begin really starting next week down this path of living out our faith, making our faith practical. And I think that, as I mentioned, oh, about four or five weeks ago, that the book of James is really just, it's, it's the New Testament Proverbs. Uh, James doesn't spend much time um, debating and acknowledging the truths about Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, Christ's name is rarely mentioned in the book of James, and that is because James makes some assumptions moving forward in his book, and that is that the people he's talking to have a firm grasp or have at least some sort of a foundation in the Christian faith. And so he wants to spend the majority of his time discussing, how do I live this out? And the series we're now in uh, is very apropos for what we're discussing here on Tuesday nights. And so as always, I recommend coming on both Sundays and Tuesdays, and that way uh, we'll, get, we'll get hit twice a week. Um, and, and basically the information is going to be the same, which I love. Uh, and so James spends a great deal of time saying, this is what you need to be doing as a Christian. And, and because of that, it's really, it's brought about some controversy, to be honest with you. Many people have read the book of James and, have, and then have read maybe the book of Galatians or some of Paul's letters, and they've kind of put the two side by side and said, now wait a minute. I'm saved by faith through grace, and yet I'm told to work out my salvation. I'm, I'm, I'm saved by grace through faith alone, and yet James says faith without works is dead, and so how do I marry those? And so that's what we're about to embark on. But before we do, I think James gives us one more shot tonight. He gives us one more opportunity to look at uh, two entities, if you will, really, to look at, at who God is and, and who we are. And I, and I think that that will prove to be helpful because the way I've heard it told is that I want to live out my, practical, uh, my faith in a practical way, but I want to do it with an accurate understanding. It's one thing if I just make a set of checklists and just start checking off the list. God, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and therefore that makes me, and then you fill in the blank, a good Christian, a, a mature believer. It's another thing if I have an accurate understanding as to why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because what we're about to get into is difficult material. It's difficult to understand and and difficult to live out. And so before we launch into that, I just want one more shot if I could tonight. And just having us understand together, I guess, just maybe a little bit more about who God is. And maybe a little bit more about who we are. Okay? Um, We sing these songs. They're beautiful songs. I love singing them. Um, But when we sing them, I hope we recognize we're singing theology. And so rather than just sing these wonderful songs uh, every week, every Sunday and Tuesday, and, and maybe in our car, and I hope we understand that, that they're rooted in some very, very accurate theology. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. I will praise your name forever and ever and ever. And my question, I guess, is why? Why would I do that? If God isn't worth praising forever. And of course we know he is. So James reminds us in James chapter 1, starting in verse 13. We'll actually try to tackle 13 through 18 tonight. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. But in verse 14, let each one, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Verse 16, James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. 
And then he concludes this in verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. What do we learn about God in this passage and really what do we learn about us in this passage? So let's go all the way back up to 13. Um, if, if I could have the uh, PowerPoint up. Uh, okay, great. Um, I ask my students when I teach, I teach over at Valley Christian High School, and I ask my students these four questions when we talk about God, and I thought I'd throw these out to you tonight. How would you define God? If this was your four-question quiz tonight, and you were on the hook for all four of these questions, how would you define God? So just, just as best as you could, does anyone, could anyone offer a definition of God? I see a hand over here. How do you define God? We, and, and, and before you say he's undefinable, which is a fair response, <laughs> what I tell my students, and I thought I'd pass this along as well, listen, if you're going to be a follower of God, I think it's a fair question when someone says to you, well, who is your God? Now, we're all going to face people who do that just to, to, to pose an argument or they're not truly interested. But let's just say someone was truly interested. You met a neighbor, you met a coworker, you met a fellow student who was agnostic or, or maybe an atheist. And, and maybe they weren't from America because we're inundated. But, and maybe they were, but they just don't have a, a real good grasp of the biblical God. And so they were sincere in their question, who is your God? What would your definition, how would you explain the God of the scriptures to someone that isn't familiar? Yeah. Uh, I would say he's everything void of evil. And maybe you could add to that everything immaterial void of evil. Okay, so he's everything void of evil. Right, everything other than evil. So anything that's not evil is God. Well, because it would be... Good, I guess, in that simple definition. Okay, yeah, and, and this is, uh, I, believe me, I don't, I'm, I don't have some sort of a, a pat answer here, so, uh, but I think we need to discover this together. So can I push back a little bit? Yes. Um, is the tree evil? That, that's why I added the immaterial part. Okay, so it has to be immaterial, okay. Uh, is the wind evil? Well, technically, it's still material, even yeah, though if it's you have blowing. Asthma, and... It is evil. Um, <laughs> yeah, it depends on how fast evil. it's yeah, going. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. if it's cold out and great, uh, I such. think it's a great start. And, and it, it, certainly, Thanks. God is not evil. So, by definition, He is void of evil. Certainly, that's true. Anything else? Anything else you'd like to add to that? Yeah, if you were to give a definition Hello? of God. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Uh, my first thought when you asked that question was just like Scripture says and the song says, God is love. Okay. I mean, that's my first thought when, when somebody says, what's your definition of your God? Is God is love. God is love. Good. Can I push back love. a little bit? Sure. Um, how many songs, if I were to ask you to give me your top ten love songs... What would they consist of? <laughs> Endless love. Love, love me true. What else? Uh, love me tender. Love stinks. Love stinks. <laughs> Bravo. Touche. So, so you still understand the problem. Yeah. Right when we say God is love, now we have to define what? Right. We got to find love. Because our culture... Uh, that's why the Valentine's Day industry is over a billion a year because our culture thrives on, they're hungry for it. We know they're hungry for it, but our culture has figured that out as well. And so our culture wants to feed a, uh, maybe an inaccurate or an emotional side of love. But, but you're right. God is love. First John chapter four, right? God is love and God is void of sin. Good. Anything else? If you were to define God. What would you say to that person, sincerely asking, who is your God? How would you define God? Hey, Greg, I guess I would tell everybody that uh, he's the only true living God, number one. And uh, 
he's uh, the God of Israel, Israel, the okay. Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption. And um, good. So, okay. So that's and I would basically uh, go with, along with that that he's all knowing. He knows beginning and the end. Okay, good. So he's all knowing. Okay, omniscient. He is the God of Israel. Uh, he is the father. I, I can't. What you said about the connection with Jesus there. I, I, the Father of Jesus Christ. The Father of our Lord and Savior. Father of Jesus our Lord and Christ. Savior, sure. Yep. All good stuff. Um, would that, can I push back just a little bit? Would that be enough if I'm seeking your God? Does that sell me on your God? He's all knowing. He's the Father of Jesus Christ. He's the God of Israel. If you're, if you're a non believer, I mean, you know, I guess you'd have to have that discussion with that person. And see where, because there are a lot of gods, a lot of false gods. Correct. So you'd have to define who God is. Correct, yeah. And and I like what you said about he's the one true living God. I like that. For, For several reasons. One, because you are then dismissing the false idols that other religions may have built up and that person may may have come into contact with. And two, you are suggesting that he's not a deistic God necessarily, but he's, that a, he's, a, he's a living God. So he hasn't just spun the world into motion and is kind of off doing his own thing, but rather he is actively involved in our affairs today. And, and guys, I, you know, can I just say, I, I think that matters to people today. I don't think they're looking necessarily for some lofty, big, academic definition of God, though you could definitely give that to them. But aren't people today just looking for, I need to know that the God you worship cares about me. I need to know the God you worship is involved and wants to be involved in my affairs. And he's not just a a, a resident, you know, policeman up in the sky looking looking to bust me when I do wrong. He's not... Um, he's not some some old grandfather that can't relate to my problems and and uh, has his own set of problems, right? He's but he's active and he's living and and he's love, right? And 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 he doesn't he, he relates to me. But the great thing about God is he doesn't sin. He can't sin. I just wanted to add one more thing. You kind of you know he's a, he's a friend that'll never leave you either. So absolutely, yep. Uh, anyone else? Okay. Um, so the, the second part of that then is, and I have my students do this, uh, draw a picture of God. What do you think they draw? These are 17 and 18 year olds. They're not four year olds. And so what do you think high school students draw when I say draw a picture of God? What, what would be your guess? They draw Jesus. Uh, they draw a cross. They draw a bearded old man. Yeah. Uh, Santa Claus-ish type person. Some push back, and again, if, if you have teenagers, or tell them when they push back to a teacher to keep pushing back, because when they push back, I tell them, no, really, you have to draw something. And so they do. And in the minute they put the pen to the paper, what have they done? They've now done something inaccurate, right? And so I'm forcing them to put God in a box, if you will, by just putting the pen to the paper and beginning to draw God what have they done to God? They've limited him. And so when they say, well, I can't draw God. God can't be drawn. And I say, no, you must draw God. Tell them to tell me, no, I can't. I won't. Because that's more accurate than even trying to draw God. Even if you draw the symbol of a cross or an empty tomb or an Easter egg, I don't, I mean, whatever you draw, you're limiting God. And, and dare I say this too, uh, it's the same with the definition. If I ask you to define God, the minute you start to talk, the only way you're going to give me an accurate definition of God is if you never stop talking. Because the minute you put a period at the end of that declarative statement, you've now limited God to that definition. Uh, every definition I've read on God is simply a description of him. Uh, we try our best to define him, but really what we end up doing, which I don't think is a problem, is describing God. And so maybe that's where we need to lead the, let the conversation go is, I can't really define my God in terms of an exhaustive definition, but what I can do for you is I can describe my God. Now, I, won't, I can't give you every description of God, 
but I think I can give you a very accurate description. And we come to passages like this one in James. We use this as a starting place. Listen, I can't tell you everything about God, but let me tell you a few things of what the Bible says about God. Uh, The third thing I ask them is, how much do you know of God? If you were to draw a pie chart and just take a sliver of your knowledge of God, how much would you know of God? And so maybe if I pose that question to you, how much do you know of the God of the Bible? What would your answer be? And this is why, gang, I continue to have hope in things like heaven. I, I, this summer we talked about heaven, and I think I mentioned I believe there's learning in heaven. Why? Because I don't believe when you die, instantly you gain all this knowledge and become God. But rather, I think heaven is going to be an eternity of learning continually about who? About this God that we serve. We'll have a more accurate perception, I think, because we'll be in heaven, we'll be in his presence. But as much as you know about God, there is still so much more to know about him. And so we take what he gives us, and then we live by faith and hope uh, in, in what he hasn't given us, right? He is the uh, infallible God, and we are fallible, finite humans. He's the infinite God, speaking to a finite group of humans. And finally, I ask my students, what, what is it that confuses you about God? Because here's what I want to declare tonight, folks, is that it's okay to go to God and say, I'm confused. This doesn't make sense to me, God. What I'm not saying is I'm abandoning you. I refuse to accept this, but rather I'm just saying, God, you are so infinite and so beyond me. In my tiny little finite mind, I just can't piece this together. And so I ask them to be honest. And and if we could be honest here at Cornerstone, what confuses you about God? And can we have a conversation about that? Can I admit to you some things that confuse me about God? And can you be okay with that? And vice versa. I think that's a great place to be as a Christian community. So those are the four questions I ask my students. We have a great discussion with that. I love this statement by Tozer. Tozer says, without a doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can can entertain is the thought of God. And the weightiest word in any language is its word for God. It's a very profound statement. The mightiest thing the mind can entertain, the mightiest thought is the thought of God. And the weightiest word you could use in any language is that word, that language is word for God. Pretty profound. Finally, Dr. Steve Tracy over at Phoenix Seminary um, leaves us with these three thoughts about, about God and why study God. I love what Dr. Tracy has to say. He says, first of all, we should study God because the greatest subject that anyone can engage their mind in is the study of God. So if you want to be productive, if you want to have a a productive uh, life, study God. Secondly, he says our eternal destiny hinges on the accuracy of our knowledge regarding the existence and character of God. Now think about that. Whatever you think about heaven and hell, folks, goes directly back to who you think God is. And that's why I can be gainfully employed for the rest of my life talking about other religions. Because as mankind, we come up with everything but the truth of God. And so we derive other, other religions are derived from that. And therefore, I can talk about other religions and you'll be able to talk about other religions because they'll always exist. And the sad thing, I guess, is that if it didn't matter, it could be just a fruitful conversation. But because our eternal destiny hinges on what you believe about the God of Scripture or what you believe about God himself, it really does matter. And therefore, I'm so glad when we come to things like Tuesday nights or Sunday mornings because we're saying to God, I care. Not just about where I'm headed. I care where my neighbor's going and my, my classmate and my coworker. And so, God, I want to learn more about you so that I can, in a loving way, share the truth with these people. And then finally, he says, victory over sin is uh, related to our knowledge of God. And this, this draws us right back into the passage. This victory over sin is related to my knowledge of God. Take a look back in the passage of the book of James. And let me just kind of give us, I guess, a few things of who God is and maybe who he's not. Uh, verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Let's stop there for a second. One thing I want to note about God then is that God is not us. Uh, uh, Lorenzo Snow, he was the fifth president, I believe, of the Mormon church. 
Uh, and he said, he coined a phrase that's been used for years and years now, but he said, as, as God once was, man can become, as, as man is, God once was. And over the, the decades now, um, Mormons have been, uh, have been pushed to defend that comment. As man, as man is, God once was, and as God is, man may become. And I'm here to tell you, folks, I don't know much, but I know this. I will never be God, nor will you. For the very fact that verse 13 is in our scripture, God cannot sin, and neither is he tempted to sin. It's beyond us to even try to figure that out, but I just know that throughout the scriptures, we find that God is light. There is no darkness in him, 1 John 1, 5. God can't be tempted to sin any more than I'm tempted to be six foot five. I had to put that to bed a long time ago. And it pains me, I guess, at times. But I've got bigger things to worry about. I, I just, it's not, I will never be six foot five. And I, I'm not tempted by that. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's, it, it's one of these things, again, when we try to define God, it's even hard for us to comprehend. How can God not be tempted to sin? He just isn't. It's not within him to sin. Which is interesting then, because if we look at Hebrews 4.15, uh, if, you, if you want to flip there, it, it, we, we discuss this issue of Jesus, right? And Jesus, First John, or some John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And so we look at the deity of Jesus, Jesus being God himself, and the certain things that Jesus, uh, certain attributes Jesus possesses, obviously God also possesses. And we think that Jesus, we know, I'm sorry, that Jesus never sinned. But Hebrews 4.15 mentions something that James 1 doesn't mention, or it may be a seeming contradiction, but in Hebrews 4.15, we're looking at, of course, the person of Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, uh, what did I say, 4, no, that's not right. Um, uh, yes, it is, I'm sorry. I was looking at 4.13. Since then we have a great high priest, verse 14, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, and we say verse mercy and find grace in our time of need. And then we turn back to James chapter 1, verse 13, and we read, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted for God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So I guess it begs the question, remember Jesus' account uh, in the Gospels, and he was led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and what happened to Jesus? He was tempted to do what? To sin. And yet Hebrews 4.15 comes along and says Jesus can sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was tempted. And yet he did not do what? Now, marry those two things. Jesus can't, he did not sin. And then in, he, in James chapter 1, we find that God can't sin. So the question is, and I've always just wondered this, I guess just food for thought since we're all here tonight. Um, could Jesus have sinned? Could Jesus have sinned? I'll just take a couple of responses to that. No, he could not have sinned. Uh, show of hands, do you agree with that? He could not have sinned. you agree with that? Okay. Who, who believes he could have sinned, but chose not to? Okay. Um, I okay. think... He just said something without the microphone, so let me repeat it. He said, where's the glory if he had no choice? Do you understand what he's saying? Uh, again, it's, it's, if I get to the end of my life and, uh, people champion my life's work and my legacy. And one of the things that I said at my funeral is, you know, and Craig just did such a great job at not being six foot five. He's really held to that. Stayed at five, eight. It, where, where's the, you know, who, who walks away thinking, yeah, thanks for, thanks for understanding my pain, Greg. And so part of the argument is, well, hang on now. If Jesus couldn't have sinned, then really how can he sympathize with our weaknesses? Um, I love when, when men talk about women and women talk about men. 
Because every time I hear a guy, when I'm in a couple small groups or whatever I'm in, you know, and I hear guys start talking about, well, you know, women do this or women do that. All the wives do the same thing. They just roll their eyes, right? Because what's the first thing you're thinking? You can't relate. My husband, you know, all men are, you know, and you guys always think this and guys are just thinking, I just, you just can't relate. So can Jesus relate to us? The scripture says he can. How can he relate then? So the other option is then, well, he could sin, could have sinned. And every time he was tempted to sin, he chose not to. Is that a possibility? But if that's a possibility, then what do we do with James chapter 1? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think he doesn't sin. He, you think he doesn't sin? Doesn't. Doesn't. Correct. Yeah, does not sin. Yeah. No, yeah, that's, yeah. And thank God he doesn't sin, right? I mean, I mean thank God. It, one of the things that differentiates God from us is God does not sin. He's never sinned ever. I guess what I struggle with, you know, what confuses you about God is, God, then how can you sympathize with me? Uh, how, how can you relate to what it's like to give in to sin and feel that guilt and shame? How does Jesus sympathize with us? And on what level does he sympathize? Here's what I think, okay? And just, we can move on. It's just, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Well, Satan believed he had a choice because he spent a bunch of time tempting him, trying to get him to. So he knew he had a, a choice in the matter. I, uh, why would he, why wouldn't, uh, why would he spin his wheels? I mean, you know, why would he spin his wheels if he thought Jesus, if he knew Jesus, it was impossible for him to do that. Why, why would he go after him as much as he did? I know why he goes after us, right? I know why he tries to, to, to tempt us and, and to get us to sin. I get that. We're all living proof of the success Satan can have with getting people to sin. But if Jesus could never have sinned, was it just perfunctory? Was it just, just kind of, you know, I have to do it? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, I'm not saying I have the answers by any means. Because I do have to turn back then to James chapter 1 and say God was never, God cannot be tempted because God can't sin. Yeah. Maybe this is part of um, the Trinity, but since, or the mystery of the Trinity, but since God can do anything, Jesus was son of man and son of God. He had a physical body, and I'm, I'm not saying that he would ever sin. However, in our innate physical body, him being on the earth, that may have allowed him to have the choice, yeah. albeit he would have never made the wrong choice. Right, right. <laughs> so I don't... Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know, guys. In my, in my flesh, I really do... I, I love thinking. I love going to bed at night thinking every time. How many times do you sin a day? Oops. Uh, let's say that you sin, you know, what, 10 times a day? Is that conservative? I mean, I mean, how many times are you tempted to sin a day? How many times am I tempted to sin a day? And guys, just look, can we just be humble tonight? Uh, you know, how many of us are on Satan's radar? I mean, really, are you that important to the kingdom where Satan's got to get trip you up all the time? Can Satan just kind of wind you up and let you go and let me go? And But Jesus... He was on Satan's radar all the time. I think Satan was very well aware. I've got three years of ministry, but I've got 33, 33 years or so to get this guy to sin. You don't think I'm going to go after him every moment of every day? And I, I, I don't know. There's something about worshiping my Savior when we sing songs like, Bless the Lord, O my soul, that I think, and every single time, Jesus chose not to sin. That frees me up to, to worship him. Now, I get it. I'm, it's, I'm not going to live or die over that one. Just, that's just kind of a personal thing. Um, there in Philippians chapter 2, we're told that Jesus gave up. He emptied himself of certain attributes. Uh, could, could that have been one? I don't know. 
But, but we do know this, and so back to whomever made the comment over here, we know this, he didn't sin. Whatever side you land on, he couldn't have or he just chose not to, he didn't either way. And that makes God very, very different from you and from me, right? God is not us, which is going to help us here in just a second. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. Um, Jesus came to do the work of the Father. Correct. And in, in part of that was that he had to be fully man. Yes. The devil was here, yeah. and the devil's job is to tempt man. And I think it could be looked at as an object lesson in doing the will of the Father. It's an object lesson in doing the will of the Father. But I agree, but we're still left with could he or, or was it impossible? It was impossible. Okay. Fair enough. Good night. Well, we're not going to solve it tonight, and I just got a couple more things I want to share with you tonight. Okay, so I can be completely wrong, but because he, it kind of bounces off of what he has to say that he was half man and, you know, came from God as well. Okay, so, okay, so can I clarify that just real quickly? Go ahead. Um, because we make a mistake when we say that, okay? He wasn't half man, half God. But what was he? Right, 100% man, 100% God. And I know that's, you know, that's semantics, but it really isn't. Uh, Jesus was fully God, 100% deity, and he was fully man. And again, that's a tension. That's a tension that, that we just, we can't relate to because we are fully man. But Jesus somehow was fully God and he was fully man. And so, uh, anyway, God, I'm sorry, God. Um, my point had to be is that he could feel the sins from people themselves because exactly. when he absolved things right. from people, he could I, experience on that level. And, and that's what I think he means when he sympathizes with us. Um, and, and maybe the distinction would be Jesus, God the Son, whereas God the Father might not be able to sympathize because he, he can't be tempted. God the Son can be tempted he, and he, was tempted, and therefore he can sympathize with you and me. Uh, it, well, I was say he never physically acted out any sins, but he watched what people do sinning and seen the reaction from them. So he lived amongst it, in a yeah. roundabout yeah. way. Absolutely. Yeah, he, he sympathizes with your weaknesses, guys. He really does. Uh, and that's the God we worship. Okay, here's the second thing. God is not us because he cannot sin. Here's the second thing. Uh, look at verse 17. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The second thing I, I noted here was that God is unchanging. He's immutable. That's the word they use. And he's, he's, God's immu he's immutable. I mean, he doesn't change. And so God is constant. And so I just want to get down, I guess, to, to ground level. Why would the consistency of God, why would God, why would knowing that our God never changes be beneficial to you? Not in theory, not in at the mine on Tuesday nights, but in your everyday life. Why would God never changing, God being immutable, why would that be beneficial to you as a follower of God? Why would that be helpful? To know that God doesn't change. Mike's coming around yeah. somewhere. I think it's because, um, you know, obviously it's because you can depend on God. Every day, no matter what you're going through, he's always going to be there for you. So with him not changing, yeah. he's just, everybody around you, people will change. Your friends, people, everybody will show the different colors, but God never changes. And that's just awesome to know that he's always going to be there and he's always consistent in his love. It's a great answer. Yeah. Was there another one out there? I'm, I'm not looking, but I'm sure someone was out there. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm kind of just wondering like the difference between old Testament God and new Testament God, um, because old Testament God had Jerusalem slaying people like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. I mean, men, women, and children, yeah. you know, all their cattle, everything. Yeah. So I, I see a difference there, you know. Uh, yeah, so, so just to, real quickly to answer that, I think in the Old Testament and New Testament, and from Genesis to Revelation, we see different facets of God. 
And so what we see in the Old Testament is certainly God's justice and his holiness kind of step forward. But because I'm holy and just, does that mean that I'm not loving and merciful? And the answer, of course, is no. I have a a co-worker. She's a, a Messianic Jew, which means that she practices the Jewish faith, our Jewish traditions, as a believer in Jesus. Phenomenal, fascinating conversations I have with her. And here's her comment the other day. It was, you wouldn't believe, if you actually studied Genesis through Malachi, how merciful God is. And how long-suffering he is. And how patient he is. I mean, think about all of the times he's put up with Israel. Uh, God is characterized in the Old Testament as, as the faithful husband who has basically a whorish wife, right? A wife that just goes out and sleeps around and he waits patiently, lovingly for her to return. And so we often focus on, yeah, the God that, that commissions Joshua to go out and, and eradicate you know, the promised land, and we read those stories, and are they in there? Absolutely. Do we have to deal with God's justice? And by the way, we get over to the New Testament, we say, well, God's a loving God, a merciful God. Really, read Revelation. <laughs> Do you understand the judgments that are going to take place in the end times? Where's the mercy in that? Where's the love in that? And so I think what we see throughout the scriptures, if we read the whole of scriptures, is we see a God who is just and merciful and holy and loving and gracious and we see but i don't think we can i don't think those things have to be contradictory anything else about i've got one more thought about god changing yeah go ahead uh, the great changing. thing about god might have lost you I'm sorry the great thing about god uh not changing is that god Shows us unconditional love. But I, it's like you read my notes. Thank you for that, saying that. I think that's what we're all searching for. Yeah. I remember in my life searching for that and trying everything I could to find it. Yeah. And then I found Jesus. And, and that's been wonderful. And, and can, do you mind me asking, why, why, is that, uh, I'll ask anyone, why is that so helpful for you to know that that God has unconditional, meaning unchanging love toward you. Why, what? At the end of the day, so what? I think that fills a void in my life. Yeah. And I know that I can come to him and confess to him any sins that I have. Yeah. And that he'll forgive me. That's exactly right. Yeah, thank you for saying that. What I was thinking was, you know what? God's unconditional love, it really means something to me. But when I'm on my mountaintop experience, when I'm at the camper retreat and I'm doing good with God and I sing songs about his love and, okay, good, love God, love, he loves me, I love him, great. But guys, the, the beauty of God not changing is I change. And so sometimes, you know, I'm like this to God, right? God's here and I'm here and, and man, I'm just, you know, my will, his will and my story with his story and my heart lines with his heart. And that, those are great times. But then I, you know, right? Sin 10 to 20, 50 times a day, you know. And, and so if God changed, he would have every right when I'm at this point to say, yeah, I'm backing off a little bit. That's not what we agreed to. But guys, the beauty of, of verse 17 is that God says, no, you're, you're over here. I'm still here, Greg. I'm, sure I'm, I'm, uh, I'm waiting for you to come back. But I, I, the, the, the very day you were born, I, I loved you the same. When you came to know me, I didn't love you any greater or less than 20 years after you've come to know me. I love you the same. So this is this is this unconditional. It's not based upon you type love, and you're going to spend your lifetime. I'm going to spend my lifetime trying to figure that one out. But I want to do this. I want to read verse 17 and say to God, God, that confuses me about you. I don't understand it. But I'm going to go to bed tonight rejoicing in it. I'm going to go to bed tonight trusting in it. That if I wake up tomorrow and I have a great devotional and great prayer time and, and I listen to Caleb on my way to work and. That I'm going to trust that you don't love me anymore because I do that. And when I'm not having a great day and I yell at my kids and, and I kick the cat and I punch a hole in the wall and 
set my house on fire, whatever I do, that God, you don't love me any less. That, that's what I get out of verse 17. That's what it means when God doesn't change. That's what I like about it, is that his love for me doesn't change, whether I'm having a good day or a bad day. So God is not like us. He's unchanging. Look at verse 18. Uh, in verse 18, it says, And in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. Who brought us forth by the word of truth, according to verse 18? Who, who did? Just shout it out. Uh, is that E-I-G-N, is that right? Guys, what I love about God the Father, God of all creation, the God of the Scriptures, is that God is sovereign. It says in verse 18, it says, by His will, in the exercise of His will, He brought who forth? Us forth. By what? The word of truth, by the Scriptures, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. I was talking to my students today, we were discussing um, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. And we were explaining, uh, I was explaining to them that in every major world religion, there is always a works-based salvation. That it's not just you're saved, but it's you're saved and now you've got to perform a whole bunch of works. And if you don't do them good enough, there's some question. And what I said was, you know, if you do them, and, and, and I could take the time to show you, I guess, in, in their own writings, and this is true of every major world religion, in their own writings, they demand that you check the lists off and thus prove that you are faithful. And when I told my students today, 17, 18-year-old kids who were just trying to figure out life, I said to them, how do you view your own salvation? And can I offer you this picture? 100% God, 0% you. Which begged the question, well, you know, and I said, well, think of it this way. If, if, if I gave Mike, if I gave him a present, what is his responsibility if I give him a present? What is his responsibility? Just to take the present. Just, just, and he could choose not to, right? If I, if I, give, if I walk to Mike and say, here's the present, I want to give this to you, all he has to do is take it. And that's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And we, we call that faith. For by grace he has been saved through faith. According to James 1.18, it is the exercise of God's will that he brought us forth through the vehicle of the word of truth. 100% God, his will being enacted upon you and me to be saved, to be regenerated, to be justified. And, and while I don't want to get into a huge debate tonight about salvation and justification... The reason I mention that, guys, is because when I stand before God, when I come here, for instance, on Sunday mornings and I sing worship to God, my worship can be so sincere and so pure because when I sin, I can go to God and say, I don't deserve any of this. And yet, for whatever reason, God, you chose to save me. And I will spend my lifetime praising you. But if I can claim some portion of my salvation, if I can claim a percentage, even if it's 1%, don't you think that our flesh gets the best of us and we're able to stand up on any given day and say, well, yeah, God did a lot in my life, but... And then we just start getting into the... But I did something too. And look at me. And that's why I, wanna, I, I just wanted to camp out tonight on this whole idea of who God is because we're going to move forward and James is going to say a whole lot to you and me about do this and do that and do this and, do, and don't do this but do this. And I don't want us ever to get caught up in this idea that, wow, God, look at me. Look how I'm holding my tongue today. Look how I'm not showing favoritism today. Look how I'm reaching out to the widows and the orphans today, God. Wow, look at me. But rather, could our attitude be, God, I don't deserve another breath. But because you've saved me and redeemed me and regenerated me, God, could I spend my life living out the Christian life? Could I spend my life thanking you by doing things that please you? Like James 2 through 5. Could I do that, God? And that, I think, I think, 
is what a right relationship with our Heavenly Father is. But I think it goes back to this idea that He's not like us. He doesn't change. His love is unconditional towards us. We don't understand that, but it is. And His will is sovereign, meaning that He didn't ask your opinion. But when God wanted to save you, He said, with or without your opinion, I'm going to save you. Thank God He did. Left to our own, where would we be? Uh, comment over here, and, and then uh, one more thing about God. Um, I was just going to say, uh, like James 2.14, faith without works is dead, but I think you start touching on it there, and you'll get to it in a week or two, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but I think one thing up here is we're not willing to do these things. Back to the Jesus, does he sin, can he sin? We're not willing to do those things. He paid a terrible price for us by not sinning. And we're not willing to do those things. So we can say he doesn't change and stuff, but that's because... It, he doesn't change, and that's sovereign. But we do change, and yeah. sometimes we change because we want to change or yeah. because we don't want to stay on the boat. And like you just said a minute ago, um, and I'm sure the husbands in the room will be able to relate to this, when you're telling your wife that you're on your walk and you're doing good, you want to be pat on the back and encouraged and say, hey, you're doing a great job. And then as soon as you fall, you want to be able to turn around and go, hey, look how good I did for four weeks. Give me a break. Yeah. You know, kind of yeah. thing. sure. And, and why is that? Because we're, ours, our love, typically our relationships, all of them are conditional. They're, they're purely conditional. Honey, I love you unconditionally. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. There, there's always, I've, I've yet to meet someone that has loved me unconditionally. As best as Leanne tried, 13 years of wonderful marriage, often it was conditional. And I know that because she, I, I was, I don't know why, I was reading one of her journals and one of her, my journal entries about her journal, or, or I'm sorry, a letter she had written to me that I just recorded in my journal. It said, uh, it was her birthday and I had a ton, I was preaching at the time and it was on a Sunday, just having me on a Sunday. It was Super Bowl Sunday. And we threw, I threw a par, Super Bowl party at our house on her birthday. Um, and I thought I would squeeze her birthday in at halftime. <laughs> it was bad. <laughs> so, the next, so the next morning I get a, a letter. She had to go to work and she left me a letter. Uh, and it sent me an email actually and, and said basically, I know what you're trying to do. I know you're busy and blah, blah, blah. But I need to let you know, you let me down. And, and, I'm, and, and I'm hurt, and I feel abandoned. And, and it's not that she didn't love me. I, I get that. But, but our love is conditional. It's, it's do it for me, I'll do it for you. And, and, and I get that. I, I'm not saying that it can't be unconditional. It's very, very hard to put God. But God's love is unconditional. It's, a, it's like this. God's love can't be conditional. Maybe a better way to look at it. God wouldn't know what to do with conditional love. God doesn't wake up every day and think, gosh, I, I hope I can love unconditionally again. I'm getting kind of tired of these people. It's, 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 his love is unconditional, period, settled. Uh, finally, then, I just I want to look at this, that God is the source of every good thing. Look at verse 18 again. Uh, verse 17, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, meaning the Father of all creation, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The source of every good thing, the source of every perfect gift is from God. And again, on a real practical level, what does that mean? That What are the good gifts? What are the perfect things? Well, look back up at verse 5. When you're going through a trial, James says, and you need wisdom to make the right decisions, what does God want to do to you but give you wisdom? Ask of the Father and He will give it to you. Matthew chapter 7 says, what kind of a father? We who are evil, we know how to give good gifts and we're evil. What do you think the, the God who isn't evil can do with good gifts? Child asks for, you know, what is it? A child asks for uh, fish and instead you'll give him a serpent. He asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? No, of course not. Every time you get a good gift this week, folks, thank the God of heaven. Every time you get something good bestowed upon you, do you realize that came from God? 
The scriptures say, unless I'm reading it wrong, for every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above. That is from the God of all creation. So could you spend your time, I take prayer requests with my students and every Tuesday and Thursday I say, what can I pray for? And rarely, rarely do I get these 17, 18 year old kids who I know love the Lord, but rarely do I get them raising their hands saying, you know what? I have no prayer request today other than I just want to thank God. I just want to thank God for the good things in my life. So, you know, pray for, for Aunt Sally and pray for my dog and pray for my grades and wouldn't it be refreshing just, you know, if Pastor Lynn said, hey, what can we pray for you for tonight? And you just raise your hand and say, you know what? I've got a bunch of things, health issues and stuff, but man, God has so blessed me. My kids said they love me or, you know, I, I got a raise or I got wisdom to make the right decision. Thank God. Praise God. Wouldn't that be a great... Do you realize that when we get to heaven, what do you think the prayer requests in heaven are going to be like? If you spend your entire life here on earth, guys, praying for health issues, you're going to be silent in heaven. So, so can we start, can we get used to praising God here on earth? Because that's what we're going to do a lot of in heaven. Every good gift is bestowed from above. Every perfect thing comes from God. And so this is who God is. Now, real quickly then, uh, we need to discuss then, okay, well, who are we then? Look back up at 13. Let him say when he is tempted, I'm, not, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Who are we? Here's the first thing I put down. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted for God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. I don't know if you can see it in this passage, but I wrote down, I think man is given a great deal of free will. How do I know that? Because I know that when I'm tempted, what do I have? A choice. And so God has given me a great deal of free will. God has not created systematic robots that little pawns that he moves around at his pleasure could but guys this goes all the way back to genesis 3 who sinned in genesis 3 adam and eve and when god said to adam why did you do it basically god was saying you have a choice not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you chose to do it ever since genesis we have had free choice and I love that. I love that aspect. Someone asked me today in school, will we have free will in heaven? Great question. And, and again, without getting into it too much, I, I said, I think we do. I think we have free will in heaven to do what we want. They said, well, how, why, why won't we sin in heaven then? I knew that was coming. And it, was, it wasn't a great answer, but I said, you know what? I, here, uh, speculation, but I don't think we'll want to. I didn't, my, my mom didn't smoke. My dad didn't smoke. If you were to lie me down in a bed of cigarettes, it, I just wouldn't be tempted. I just, I'm not tempted by that. And I thought, you know, could that be what heaven is like? I have free will. I have free choice in heaven. I just don't want to sin. Sin is not in heaven. And I just don't feel that I just, I wouldn't know what that would be like in heaven to sin. But I love the fact that I have free will. I have a choice when I'm tempted. God's given me a choice. And so here's the second point is unlike God, I think often we choose wrong. I think in fact, we're prone to sin. We don't have time tonight, but if you have a chance, read the book of, of Romans chapter seven. Paul goes at length of saying the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do I, that I shouldn't do, I do. The things that I should do, I don't do. Woe is me. Who will save me, basically, Paul says. And then don't read chapter 7 without reading chapter 8. Right? Because Paul says, but thanks be to God. God, you are the author of my salvation. But we are prone to sin. In fact, if I were to ask you... Um, what are some of the creative excuses we come up with when we give into sin? I wonder what we'd say. What do we come up with? Why, when we sin and someone says, why did you do that? Like, why did you do that? What do we say? What's our excuse line? What, what do we say? It's my wife's fault. It's, it's my wife's fault is what was said here in the front. 
It's, it's everybody else's fault besides your own. <laughs> it's it's what? It's everybody else's fault besides your own. It's 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 yeah. It's somebody else's. Doing. Absolutely. Yeah. What what excuses do we come up with? Weakness. It's not me. I'm weak. Who made me do it? Devil. The devil made me do it. My, my dad. My dad made me do it. Right? We have we have enough excuses to last us a lifetime. In fact. My students nowadays, they they play the judgment card. Why are you asking me that? Who are you? How dare you ask me why I just sinned? Who are you to tell me that? Because let's look at your life. We deflect. We're professionals at deflecting. Um, My eight-year-old Bailey. uh, Children begin lying at age two, they figured out. Two to three. By age four. Kids are like, statistically, by age four, kids are lying every two hours. By age six, every 90 minutes. If, if, you, if you go on, online, watch some videos on this, they do case studies with kids. It's, it's absolutely hilarious because they put kids in these rooms, put a bowl of cookies or a plate of cookies in front of them, and you know, they say, don't eat the cookies, you know, and... People, adults leave the room. Was the kid, kids eating the cookies? And then when that, you know, when the adult screams back, you know, how, are you eating the cookies right now? Nope, I'm not. Are you lying? Nope. I, I mean, they're they're all over the, the internet, but you, you know, kids with chocolate all over their faces. Did you eat the cookies? No. <laughs> I caught my eight-year-old Bailey lying, and, uh, and so I made him write out. Um, I think it's up. If you have PowerPoint, it's up here. Um, I made him write out, uh, you know, I will not lie. And so he, he did it. I said 50 times. He went 55. So good for him. This is the note he wrote at the very end. I actually got the actual original paper. At the very end, he writes this note. He says, uh, you can read at the bottom there, but he says, I'm so sorry I lied to you. Uh, I just wish I could hit a reverse button. Uh, when I was writing this, I thought a little bit and decided not to lie. I hope, it, I hope uh, as I grow up, I won't lie. Love, Bailey. Yeah, a little eight-year-old sinner. <laughs> and and that, was, uh, that was about a year ago. Um, and I'm here to tell you, uh, he has lied since. We're sinners, guys. And we will justify our sin to no end. And this goes back to God's unconditional love and His sovereignty and the fact that He chooses to love us in spite of that. Uh, Just one comment. Um, At the weekend, Pastor Lynn had a really great message and it hit me between the eyes, which was, nowadays what we tell ourselves is, I'm doing so good in this 75% over here yeah. that I'm going to allow myself 25% yeah, sin I deserve it almost. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, we, we, we will justify our sin till the day we die. So we're out of time, so let me leave you with this. Um, because, guys, James gives us two paths to choose from. James says, when trials come your way, because I want your faith to be tested, trust in me, trust in God. When you're struggling, ask me for wisdom and I'll give it to you. And when that happens, you will, you will enter into what we call a mature faith. That's path number one. Path number two is let no one say when he's tempted by God that God's doing the tempting, but rather when each man gives into temptation, he gives into sin, and sin brings forth uh, death. That's the end result of sin. Not spiritual death, if you're a believer in Christ, but, but often uh, some sort of death, even sometimes physical death. And James lays out, in the very first chapter, he lays out two paths you and I can go down. And I'm suggesting here that we choose the first path. When trials come your way, trust that God wants to use those trials to your advantage later on so that your faith will be tested, you'll be mature in them. And when temptation comes your way, you actually have the strength to say no. And when we do that, let me just finish with Ephesians chapter 2, because I, I think Paul leaves this as by way of encouragement to what we're talking about tonight. And rather than elaborate, I'll just read it. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience among them too we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind and we were by children uh, nature children of wrath even as the rest but god but god being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions God made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. James ends this chapter by saying, or this section by saying, we are the first fruits of his creation. And I take that to mean, guys, you are, the, you are the jewel crown of God's creation. God wants to show you off, basically. Saying, look at my creation. Look how they, they respond to me and love me and, and align their hearts with mine and make right choices. And God's not a big fan of you and I just wallowing in our sin. Are we saved? Absolutely. Does his love leave? Never. But God wants your life to be so productive and so fruitful and so full of joy and hope. And that only comes when we're making better choices. So as we continue on with this, this theme of being Christian, you know, not being Christian atheist, and we look at the book of James now and we roll into now, okay, what do I do on a daily basis? Keep in mind that God has saved us and you were once saved, always saved. You're going to heaven. The question isn't that. The question is, what am I going to do in between now and heaven? Let's pray. God, thank you for tonight. I love being with these people. I love uh, Tuesday nights. So God, may we have a fruitful next season here. And God, if there's someone here tonight that doesn't understand your love, uh, maybe there's someone here tonight, Father, that has never embraced your love. May you just reach into their hearts tonight. Speak into them, Holy Spirit, and allow them to see how wonderful your love is. And may that be my motivation. May that be our motivation this week, Father. That when temptation comes our way, we're not going to blame you. We're not going to justify it away. We're not going to excuse it. We're going to deal with it. Recognizing, man, we have a great choice ahead of us. And when we choose right, we know that not only are you pleased, but our lives are so much the better. Give us the strength to do that. We will give you all the praise and glory. And all God's people said, amen. We'll see you next week.